0: Welcome to the 28th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of consumer, retail, and commerce. Joining me today is Dave Kong, the founder of DAVEK, a luxury utility brand focused on making the best umbrellas in the world. Dave has been mesmerized by the mechanics of umbrellas almost a decade before starting DAVEK, as he designed, built, and rebuilt them in every conceivable way.
1: Umbrellas are really complex. For instance, it takes 200 parts to make a single folded umbrella. And unlike most accessories like say a handbag if a rivet fails you know the thing still works with umbrellas everything's so tightly synchronized so if there's any type of flaw the whole thing
0: doesn't work dave and i had a great talk about the founding story behind davek the emergence of luxury utility companies across the consumer goods space and how dave pivoted the business from one driven by wholesale to one driven by e-commerce it's always fun to talk to people who are obsessed with what they do and dave definitely fits that description here's my talk with dave kong Tell me a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. (laughs) Selling umbrellas? Yeah. It started
1: when I was in college, I was studying mechanical engineering and, you know, I just became really intrigued by the mechanism. You know, one simple motion, eight arms extend itself synchronously. It's a surprisingly complex mechanism and most people overlook it and they don't really examine it the way I did, but brilliant, brilliant design and the core design's been around for over a thousand years. So, I you know I just thought it was really something. And, you know, the reverse action creates a really small footprint for the thing that gives you so much surface area. You can put it in your pocket, for instance. And I just thought, wow, this is an amazing thing. At the same time, though, it was really deeply flawed. You know, who hasn't been frustrated with a crappy umbrella? So, I just thought someone can do a better job. I thought that the space was interesting in that it was Weirdly vacant. And it's the kind of accessory that can make the leap to fashion. It's not just purely utilitarian. So, in today's noisy, brand centric world, I just thought, hey, this is a strange space that didn't have a strong brand. And I think if I were to remove, say, totes from the marketplace, you'd be hard pressed to think of, or the common user, I think, would Mm -hmm. would be hard pressed to think of one other brand. So, there was an opportunity there that I thought wasn't being met. I didn't really leap to the idea. For years, though, you know, it was just sort of incubated in my system, and it was something that I just did out of pure pleasure and just examined and tinkered with for years, you know, and I lived my life. After I graduated, I got a job like everyone else and started another company, but it was always there in the back of my mind, you know, and it was the idea that sort of never went away, and I was fortunate enough to sell uh, one of my uh, companies, and so I had some resources available to me that's when I made the transition from weird obsession to something that's a little, you know, less strange and a little more real. Hired a few more engineers in addition to myself to really take a close look at the frame because the frame is really the core. And I didn't want to bank something that was really marketing driven. You know, I wanted to make something that was truly real and truly better. And so I looked at some of the other players who were doing something similar, not in the umbrella space, but in categories that were stale and filled with undifferentiated product like vacuum cleaners, Dyson, for instance, mm. you know, he came up and he changed the industry. I thought there was an opportunity similar to that. We really took a look at the frame. And over time, we just improved it. We created our first model, which is the Solo, it continues to be our bestseller. And we had one model. And we had a trade show that we went to. And it was just amazing what happened at the show. And that
0: really launched the company. How many years did the tinkering encapsulate and then what was happening
1: you know, from that show? You know, it's been about 10 years now, but prior to the you know, 10 years, it really was about five years where we just sort of developed the frame. It wasn't an all out effort, you know, keep that in mind. You know, now, now that we have the infrastructure in place to design new things, it takes us about a year, maybe even a little longer, a year and a half to make a new model. We spend that much time trying to work from the frame and then work ourselves up to the aesthetics We started out with a lot of weird ideas, and then everyone does. You know, when you try to get into a new space, the type of fabric that'll allow wind to go through, you know, weird concepts. But in the end, when you're in luxury, people don't want contraptions. You know, what they want more than anything else is they want quality. You know, if I can make the analogy with cars, for instance, we didn't have to make a car that flew. You know, we just needed to make a BMW. And that's really what our goal was, to just use really, really good, simplistic engineering to make sure that we use the right materials, make sure that there's a sturdiness that you can sense viscerally the minute you pick it up, because you can sense quality the minute you touch it. And when you go overseas and you find suppliers and manufacturers to produce the thing that you've designed, there's always going to be this gravitation towards compromise. You, know, mm-hmm. you just sort of have to. It's inevitable. But making something out of plated plastic might visually look like metal, but the minute you touch it, You know, you know if something's authentic or not. The best engineering starts with materials. So you begin by examining, you know, what's out there now and what works and what doesn't work. I know that the thing that we wanted to achieve more than anything else was strength. So we needed that to be the first and foremost attribute of our frames. The thing about wind, though, is it's unpredictable. You know, and the one thing that people hate more than anything is inversion, you know, when the, when the wind hits the frame. So we needed to combat that. The best way that we went about doing it, if you have something that's just too rigid, eventually it will succumb to wind and will break. You know, the rivets will break or whatnot. So you need to have a weird balance between rigidity to resist inversion for the most part and flexibility. That's the big challenge. You know, a lot of manufacturers make the mistake of being too rigid and you walk around carrying a sledgehammer, you know, something that. Really, really heavy. You know, all of our umbrellas, we only have eight. You know, we've been around for 10 years and we've developed only eight umbrellas, you know, but they all combat wind differently. You can't just have one general approach to combating wind and think that it's going to work for everything. And so each umbrella that we develop uniquely addresses that particular issue. So, you know, we, the first one that we developed was a solo, and it improves every year. Every year we make, you know, changes to it, we make little tweaks to improve what we've got. And we're not adverse to integrating new things that are developed within the market space that hasn't hit the U.S. yet. So every year, you know, I make a trip out to the factories and they make a big presentation to me and tell me, what's new and what's not in the industry. And, you know, we pick and choose what our particular audience in the U.S., this
0: consumer of premium goods, what would they gravitate towards? And so we would integrate that into our our umbrellas. I'm curious to kind of talk a bit about, I guess, the market more broadly, which you alluded to before. To me, especially walking on the streets of New York, everyone is familiar with, the second it rains, all these vendors pop up selling these cheap commodity umbrellas that people kind of grab, they use maybe once or twice and they throw out. How did you kind of approach, you talked before about no one had really done this well or right, but why do you think that is in a way? And was that maybe more on the supply side or was that more on the demand side with consumers just not looking for that necessarily? A little bit of both. They both feed into each other. When you have
1: everyone producing umbrellas that are uniformly poor quality. You need to justify, you know, why you're going to do something different. And so if you're an entrenched company that's producing, you know, millions of umbrellas every year and you're doing quite well, then there's really no reason to change. Umbrellas are really complex. For instance, it takes 200 parts to make a single folded umbrella. And unlike most accessories, like say a handbag, if a rivet fails, you know, the thing still works. With umbrellas, everything's so tightly synchronized. When you close the thing, if you take a close look, then the ribs actually nest into each other. So if there's any type of flaw, the whole thing doesn't work. And so there, it's it sounds a sounds like an airplane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you're not gonna die, but yeah. you know, your umbrella will fail. Yeah. And so if you're on the manufacturing side, you can go a certain way and say, you know, we're gonna make these things and they're gonna fail within a year, but then that your consumer is gonna have to buy another one. And that's not such a bad thing for manufacturers. It really takes an outsider to say, I wanna do something different. I'm going to come up with, first of all, a new design, which is difficult, you know, just to begin with. You know, you're going to be using a different infrastructure to make the thing. And then you have to impose, which is the most difficult thing, just these quality control checks. And, you know, you can make anything you want in China these days, and you can make one production run. But the challenge with making a product that's going to endure the test of time is making sure that you have all these checks in place that will ensure that this thing going to be made in a particular way over time. And that is the big challenge in China. That's what many manufacturers don't do. And so it's extremely costly to do that. So costly, you know, our umbrellas cost like four or five times the amount as your normal umbrella would cost. So if you're making a living making $10 umbrellas, you really have to have faith that there is a market out there for a $100 umbrella. I believe that there was because I'm that guy. You know, I'm the kind of guy that wants to buy one thing that's going to last, you know, for X number of years. And so that was really where it came from. You know, we didn't know if there really was a market for a $100 umbrella until we had the trade show. And it was an upscale show. And all the vendors were there, you know, Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Bergdorf Goodman. And they just knew that there was a demand for something like this. And they also knew that there wasn't anything like this out there. And again, I go back to what attracted me to the space to begin with. It was the opportunity that there was just huge vacancy of quality. I thought that we can fill it. And it's been great ever since.
0: And so leading up to 2005, how did you decide to kind of start where you did, which is, I guess, a two part question. One, how did you decide that the solo as it would become was the place to start and that kind of the focus on that single product? And then two, that the trade show, which is wholesale distribution, was also the way to sell it. Well, in
1: 2005, there wasn't you know, the internet was vastly different than yeah. it is today. Today, you know, of course, we would have started online. But I design everything from my perspective. You know, I design what I would appreciate as a consumer. When I go out into a store and I'm looking for stuff to buy, I appreciate certain things, certain little details that I like. That's how we approach design in general. Now we have a design vocabulary that's in place, and so everything, even though they're different models, they kind of look like they belong together. But in the very beginning, it's really just my own aesthetic and my own desire to have something that works really, really well. And so the solo is just the size of the umbrella that I like. I'm a normal size guy, and you know, I like something that's very compact, that's going to be able to fit into any type of compartment that I, I might be carrying in. And also, uh, to give me adequate coverage for my size individual. But right off the bat, with the success of the solo, it was a men's show, incidentally, that we went to first. They immediately asked for a larger version, so we introduced the duet. Uh, which is really made for two people or one single big guy. That was really, really successful. You know, one of the great things about umbrellas is that it's unisex and that's there's a lot to be said about that because many many accessories now you know it's either one or the other you have handbags you have wallets and whatnot with umbrellas it's truly unisex so you really get everybody despite that though it leans in a certain direction the solo has a lot of automotive cues for instance that resonates with men when they pick it up so we wanted to make something that was a feminized version of that so we introduced the traveler and the mini Men like certain things, like durability and strength was the most important thing for all, for everybody, men and women, you know. But then you take one tier back beyond that, and then men like things that are really compact. And women, the next most important thing was color. And so, you know, we started to really examine who our audience was and what they were asking for, and we integrated that into a new model. But one thing, in the same way that I introduced automotive cues to the, quote, men's model, for the women's model, we started to introduce cues that were common to, say, handbags and things like that, that have an emotional grasp on women. One of the things that we tried to do was say, let's try to make the leap from an accessory and bring specialness to it. Make it as special as a Dunhill briefcase, for instance, or a Montblanc pen, or a beautiful handbag. And why do people feel a certain way when they pick up an accessory? And it's all done through cues. It's not like it's a gearship knob, but yeah. we do introduce certain little aspects that people might not know why they love this thing visually, but they do. And that's enough. And the way that you do that is just through cues. It's still it's very, very early in the game, but you know, loss is one of the most aggravating things with umbrellas. You know, the first aggravating thing is that umbrellas break. And so we address that just through engineering. And then the next thing was loss. You know, what do you do? And some people might not want to buy a hundred dollar umbrella because they feel I've lost every umbrella. Right. I'm, I'm going life. to lose it why would yeah, I do this? Yeah. Exactly. So loss has always been a factor for us. And so this technology called proximity awareness just came about. Literally, you know, when the iPhone 4 was introduced, it was the first iPhone that had beacon technology integrated into it. Now, proximity awareness would not work unless people were walking around with a beacon, you know what I mean, a beacon reading device, except that's what happened, essentially. And so we were able to take that technology, integrate it into our umbrellas, and we created the Davic Alert, which is the first umbrella where you compare to your phone. And if you ever leave it behind, it'll send you a notification preventing you from losing it. So that was the last model that we introduced. And again, we've been around for 12 years. We
0: only have eight models, but we feel that that's a good number to have. And so I'm curious, given kind of the traditional route that you went with the trade show and all that, what was the first year or two like in terms of, it sounds like the response was good, but what were some of the highlights or challenges of starting this company early on? The trade show was really important to us because again, when we started, we just
1: didn't know if there was really a market for this. And 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 who
0: was the we at this point? Was it you and someone, or just mostly mostly No, it was
1: me. I had a business partner. His name is Ben Tai. It was just validation. You need that validation in the very beginning when you're working on a product. Because at that point, we just had this very cool prototype and one batch, one production batch of one color, one model. We needed that validation. So we went to the show and immediately, right from the get-go, there was a huge demand for it. And trade shows are not, in my opinion, these days, the best way to get out there. There is no singular channel that you have to go through. Everybody knows these days with Warby Parker and Bonomos and whatnot, you start out with one channel, it could be wholesale, that's okay, you know, but then you eventually have to migrate to the other channels that are out there. It's not just about online and wholesale, there's also corporate. Corporate's a big part of my business that people often ignore.
0: In terms of branding, just explain corporate really quick. A
1: corporate gift, you know, the corporate gift business. You know, people say, you know, how large is the umbrella market? And the umbrella market, you know, it's about a billion dollars. There's about 50 million folded umbrellas that are sold per year. But our umbrellas are different than most in that they make a great, tremendous gift item. Even from the way they're boxed, the way they look, the authenticity behind it, it's just a nice, nice gift to give to somebody. The gift market is enormous. There's the retail gift market, and then there's the corporate gift market, which is gigantic. You know, Every year, these companies have these huge annual meetings. They have these huge benefits, these big charities, and they typically want to give an item to their participants. And so that's a big, big market that people don't really know about. And so when I talk about channels, it's more than just about online, more than just about retail or wholesale. It's, there's other channels that you can tap into as
0: well. There's a the discount channel too. Going into the business early on, did you have previous kind of manufacturing experience or was this a whole new thing for you? I've had experience of product design,
1: but it all comes down to your ability to communicate really clearly. Now, I'm a graphic designer and that helps a lot. I personally believe graphic designers have an edge on people who don't have that skill. Because when you're going overseas and you're trying to communicate specifications to people who may speak broken English, it's really important that you're able to articulate your need graphically. So I'm able to do that. And so just that alone, I mean, I didn't have any contacts you know, overseas. I got really, really lucky in that regard. But umbrellas are manufactured in really just a handful of provinces in China. Ninety-five percent of all umbrellas are made out mm-hmm. in China. And there's a reason for that. It's not just the factories, but there's this whole ecosystem. These provinces are only umbrella manufacturing provinces. And there's this whole ecosystem developed. All these suppliers. I mean, there's factories that just make rivets for umbrellas, if you can imagine. Okay. So that's why there's not a single manufacturer of umbrellas in the U.S. Because that ecosystem doesn't exist, and you would actually produce a product that's inferior to those that are produced overseas. The challenge becomes convincing your factory to do things your way and to accept all the quality checkpoints that you're going to impose on them during manufacturing. That is not just your ability to communicate, it's it's your ability to be reasonable. And you have to also show them that your idea is working for them to be able to say, yes, we are going to do all these things for you, but only
0: because we see that you are seeing success. What was the early learning curve like? You said you got lucky with kind of the connections. You had kind of some centralization in terms of where to go. But that can
1: make or break. You know, you choose the wrong manufacturer right from the start. I mean, you have all these people from Kickstarter and I read some of the experiences that they have and it's a nightmare if you have the wrong manufacturer. It could have happened to us. It just didn't. You know, now we have lots of different factories that we work with and we have an agent that's out there that we know really well and that we worked well together. You know, we got very, very lucky right from the get go with a few key people any one of those people, if they were anybody else, you know, we'd have a very different story to tell right now. You learn. Of course, we've had our own disasters in terms of production, but those are well-earned learning experiences, really. With our product in general, a lot of defects you can't tell during production. For instance, rust or corrosion, that's something that you have to test over time. And you're in mass production, you've never had anything rust they may, instead of stainless steel rivets, which is what we use, they may use a different type of alloy. And they look the same during you know production. But when you do these tests, do you know that it has not passed? So all these things, you just have to live through it and say, okay, this has happened. We're not going to have this happen again. Only after 10 years do we know we've got this process in place that ensures quality product over time. And that is the challenge.
0: We talked a bit before about kind of price and all that. And so no one had really done this before, kind of the price point that, that you wanted to operate at. How did you kind of get to that level? Was it? Well, nobody's done it before with umbrellas, okay. but people have done it before. At a very basic level, we
1: are selling umbrellas and we love doing that. You know, that's really our reason for being. However, after all these years, we do examine ourselves. We take a step back and say, are we doing something a little different? Are we doing something that's important? You know, other than just umbrellas, is there some type of business practice that we represent? When looking at it from that lens and removing all the umbrella terminology from the equation, what we've decided that we're doing that's different is being the high-quality choice within a category that is traditionally very low quality. And we're not the first to do that. I mentioned Dyson before. Dyson is probably the perfect example of what we call a luxe utility brand. Lux utility is the phrase that we coined that just simply means that you take a product that has traditionally been viewed as being purely utilitarian, being a utility product, and injecting elements of luxury into it to make it a very, very attractive proposition. And when I say luxury, I don't mean branding. You know, I mean, the things that make an item part of the luxury landscape. And that means quality more than anything else. That means something that will last the test of time. These are cues that sort of signify who you are, you know, and what your values are. Do you like things that will last over time or do you want disposable? There's nothing wrong with disposable. But, you know, is that what you seek as an individual? So other brands like Nest, smoke alarms, I mean, who would think that that is something that people would covet? Except they made a fantastic device that did just that. Bugaboo. When they started, McLaren used to be the leading brand for strollers, and then all of a sudden they came out with this thing that looked like a car. You can do that, and the thing that really allows that to happen is that the space that it emerges from has to be very stale. It has to start out with nothing in there, you know, in kind of the way that umbrellas were, you know, 11 years ago. There was nothing out there. It was all uniformly very, very low quality stuff. So there has to be a really low quality threshold to begin with. And that's where you can have a breakout product in the manner that Dyson did or that we're trying to do. You have to have a product that is genuinely better. You can't just market your way through a luxe utility. You know, you got to be able to have something that is truly superior, functionally superior than what is out there, and also visually distinctive. And if you look at all those examples that I gave to you, they're all visually distinctive another quality with the space that we're all participating in is that they all have a very curated selection, you know, in this Amazon driven world, it's easy to want to give you more, you know, always. But if you look closely at these uh, manufacturers or these brands that are giving you high quality choice, they give you just a few, just a few things that you could choose from. You know, like we have eight umbrellas, you know, over 10 years, we look at ourselves and say, what are we doing that's different? Well, those those are the things that we're doing that's different.
0: I guess the question then becomes, why do you think a lot of these luxe utility brands are happening now? Why are these certain commodity or, or low quality industries turning over into creating more of these opportunities? Because it seems that there's a lot of momentum behind it with umbrellas. You mentioned Nest, you mentioned vacuum mm-hmm. cleaners. People sometimes will say that like Silicon Valley is working on becoming an assisted living facility for the rich and that they're kind of taking all these things that generally we're whatever and making them better. Some of them are superfluous. Some of them are very practical. Mm -hmm. Why is the pace of it accelerating? It's not
1: accelerating. I think it's always been around. Hmm. You know, I think that there's always been breakout products, you know, but I think it takes an outsider to come in and say, we're going to do something very different. And I think that takes time, you know, for somebody to just build a business. A lot of people don't even know about our brand. We're considered an outsider when we started. You know, now we're one of the brands that are within the industry. I just think it takes a lot of time to start a new brand. It takes at least 10 years to start a brand, you know, for, to get into the mindset of people. So these developments happen over time, but it's, it's not something that's recent. It's happened whenever there's a vacancy, whenever there's an outsider, and whenever there's the will to do it. And also, there's all those little details that have to make a business succeed that any you know myself included if any one of those parts you know did not fall into the place that it did we wouldn't have made it and we wouldn't
0: have been this brand that we are today talk a bit about how you kind of approach advertising finding new customers growing the business in kind of your own way we think that the best promoter is going to be your product we've always felt that
1: you make a really really good product and it's going to promote itself and it's going to encourage word of mouth these days you know we added from wholesale to uh, online and there's a whole array of digital marketing strategies available to us now that we use to market ourselves online. Online is a very good vehicle for umbrellas because they photograph really well, at least ours (laughs) do. They're unisex, you know they don't require sizing and stuff like that so it works really really well online so our transition from wholesale to online was very seamless and then once you get online then you can start to promote yourself in a way that we've never had access to these people selling through individual stores. When you're selling through stores, you have to depend on your partners to do the promoting for you. Everything from how everything is merchandised you know, in their store to you know, what the messaging is and all that. And now we have so much control over that that we can convey what our message is to the consumer directly through our website, through our store. And we can market to you directly if you just simply visited our store, that we can remind you about who we are when it's raining. Hmm. You know, there's these great weather bid modifiers that we can hmm. implement on our marketing plan, you know, so that when it's raining, we could say, "Hey, remember us," you know, just by simply coming to our website. And all these marketing mechanisms that we never had in place to work directly to reach directly to the consumer, really really refreshing. Our messaging is a lot more accurate to how we want to convey ourselves. In the very beginning, we we were all about strength. You know, we're about strong umbrellas. We thought people wanted strong umbrellas. They do, of course, want strong umbrellas, but we took a step back and we're like, why do people want us to do? People just simply want strong umbrellas, but they wanted things that would last. So really it wasn't about strength, it was about longevity. And then we introduced the unconditional lifetime guarantee to that to say, look, this is a product that you just have to buy once. And if for whatever reason, Hurricane Sandy comes around and it does fail, you know, we're behind it, we'll replace it for free and give you that unconditional lifetime comfort.
0: So I want to talk a bit about kind of the warranty piece, because to me, that was one of the best parts that stood out about the company is, again, given loss and damage happens, you're standing behind it. Yeah. Explain kind of briefly what it is today and kind of how did you come up with it? How did you economically rationalize it? Kind of what went into creating that bold proposition? I started out saying that, you know, the brand was about strength and it
1: evolved from being about strength to being about longevity and then to being about buying one thing. You know, one thing versus a stream of replacements. And so we needed a message that would really convey that. You know, the first part of that, of course, is building a what we call a longevity brand. It starts with just the engineering. You know, it's got to be about the thing first. You know, the thing has to last. Once you accomplish that, the thing's going to fail. You <laughs> know, eventually something might happen. You know, so you need to be able to back it up and if your brand is about longevity, if it is about having that one thing, the unconditional lifetime guarantee has to be part of that equation. So when we started out doing that, we said, let's do that. It was a scary proposition to add because we didn't know if there was gonna be abuse and whatnot, but what we learned, strangely, it became the best thing that people can talk about about our particular brand. So no matter what you do, literally, with the umbrella, you could have it for 10 years, you could take a box cutter, cut the canopy and send it back to us, we're gonna send you a new one for free as long as you pay for shipping. And so, that has been our best marketing device. It's a real thing that we offer. At the same time, the byproduct of that has been this tremendous goodwill and marketing that we never could have purchased. And every bit of press that we have, they always talk about that because it is so kind of crazy in its own way, but crazy in a good way. You also get a tremendous amount of feedback from customers. When you get product back, Mm. you can only test so much within a lab. You know, but when something's being used for five years, you can take it back and say, well, I think that we can reduce this defect over time by doing these things. You know, I mean, you get that type of feedback when you have that long-term relationship with the customer. And really, it's so hard to maintain that relationship, especially with things like accessories. You know, who knows if they're going to leave? But what it does is it allows you to keep that customer, keep that relationship. The lifetime guarantee, it's been uh, one of our greatest assets. You can only do it, though, at a high price point. If you have something that's, you know, $10, unconditional lifetime guarantee, it has less value.
0: Economically, how did you think through that or kind of what we didn't think through it? You didn't, you just did it.
1: We just did it. You know, in the very beginning, you just sort of, we're a little more careful now, you know, (laughs) but in the very beginning, we really wanted to break out of the pack. And we knew our value proposition was not about being disposable. You know, it was the opposite of that. And so we said, what is the opposite of that? And it was like one thing forever, for, forever, yeah. the forever guarantee. And so we just took that leap of faith. It's, it's costly. I won't lie about that. I mean, when things come back,
0: but I think we have a lot more to gain than, than any loss that we've experienced. So given kind of the company is 12 years in, how do you look at the future? Here's where we are now. You've kind of continually evolved the business towards more of a direct model. How do you look forward? We're just going to continue to get the word out. We know what we want. You know, we want to be the best umbrella
1: company out there. And we want to make sure that we produce umbrellas that are the best, that are known as being the best. That was one of the appealing attributes about the category because of that opportunity. And so we're here now. But we want to improve ourselves over time. And we think that there's so much opportunity to do even better. Our goal is not just simply to make a better umbrella, to make a perfect one. And that is something that there is no end to that. It's just a continuous process of development, a continuous process of improvement to make next year's frames even better than this
0: year's. And that's it. That's our simple goal. What's the team look like today versus kind of where you started?
1: We have uh, six people that are core seasonally for the people that come in. We have a whole team of people that help us with fulfillment. We have a fulfillment facility out in New Jersey. We have a quality control team. about five people out in China that perform our quality control. It's really about control versus ownership. You know, we don't need to package everything ourselves and own the process of packaging. You know, we know that there's fulfillment facilities out there that will do a much more efficient job than us. But it is about being able to articulate specifications, say, this is the way that we want things done to be able for them to follow those instructions. All those companies can do it. You, know, you don't need that many people to mm-hmm. be able to articulate those instructions. You just need a core group that know what they're doing.
0: does your design process look like today and how has it evolved since when you started 12 years ago or before that?
1: It's largely the same. I started out saying that almost everything that I design, I design you know from my perspective. Would I be willing to buy this? this is this something that I find attractive? This is this something that I appreciate? So it starts there. You know, we're developing now a, a little capsule. You can attach the loss alert technology very to cool. any of our models. But it does surprise me that the process that I go through now is almost precisely the same process that I went through when I designed the very first umbrella. And, you know, you take a look at what's out there, and you have to be a really keen observer of things that might be very close to what you're looking for. Because ultimately, what you want to be able to do is communicate to a third party prototype maker, a third-party engineer, a third-party manufacturer, and say, this is what I'm looking for. You know, So when we were designing the handle of the Solo, it was really a light bulb that I said, you know, ergonomically, mm. this feels really, really good in my palm. You have to be able to survey your environment and say, this is what I'm looking for. And just for the purposes of communicating to this other person who's ultimately going to help you make this thing. Here it is. And normally when I have something that I'm making, I have all these disparate pieces of junk that's around me in a box. And I'm like, well, this is what I want for this. This is what I want for that aspect. This is what I want for this part. And this is how long I want this thing. And then you come up with a final first rendition. It always takes three iterations to get anything right. You come up with the first prototype. And now what's really great now is that I have this infrastructure in place, just making prototypes, it's my dream come true. And so we make one prototype. It's usually a disaster. And then you make changes to it. You make a second prototype. And a third one is close to what you want. I actually go through almost every single model that we've gone through, every single thing that we developed. And it's kind of like Christmas Day. You know, Whenever you get a, a new prototype that's being sent to you and you have the box, you open it up, there's nothing more exciting than to see this thing that started out with just this mass of stuff that's been put together in a different way, in a different context... And you see what's been produced There's just something that's really special about that moment, just seeing it come to life. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for talking. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. This episode was edited by George Drake Jr. and my thanks to him for his time on it. I really enjoyed talking with Dave about his journey as an umbrella maker and how he has evolved his business as the fundamental dynamics of the marketplace continue to shift. We have a great roster of upcoming guests including Janet Martinez of Lumia, Lana Aliyah of Style End, and Evan Fript of Paul Evans. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.